Colleagues, guests, friends, my name is Tony O'Shea. I'm very pleased to be here um, as I've worked on a number of the uh, resources that are in your packs along with Jane Wardale. Um, we now move on to the final parts of our morning where I invite you to put questions to our speakers. So can I ask uh, Rowena Arshad, Hilary Holmes, Arlen Hunter and Kim Woods to come and join me on the platform? Thank you. While our speakers are getting settled, I'd just like to inform you of a few procedural points for this part of the morning. Um, I'll start by taking questions from the theatre. And if you can, please wait for the microphone to reach you, otherwise the sound will not be picked up um, for uh, people taking part over the web. And when the microphone does reach you, if you can please tell us who you are and where you're from, whether that's within the Open University or another institution. Um, for colleagues taking part in the, na- the nation and regional centres by video conference, can you please indicate if you have a question by turning on your mic? And you can do that now, so don't wait till the very end, please. And for colleagues and ca- guests taking part over the web, please email any questions that you have now. Okay, so I think uh, our speakers are uh, all ready. So if I can just re- re- recap very, very briefly... Uh, Rowena has covered a breadth of considerations from curriculum development to teaching practice and institutional commitment and shared many examples of practice from Scottish institutions. Hilary talked about the development of maths from across the world and also how on reflection the course team might have liked to do some more. Arlen spoke about some of the considerations the the course team made in developing a new course and the use of a range of cultural, spatial, and temporal examples. And Kim shared some fascinating cultural uh, artefacts with us from Benin and how this provides an opportunity to explore the issues that emerge when cultures meet. So I'm sure uh, you'll agree they were all very fascinating and interesting presentations. So we'll start with um, our guests here in theatre. So if you'd like to raise your hands if you've got a question, please. So I'm going to take two or three to start with. So, okay. um, My name is Carol Richardson. I'm from the Arts Faculty in the Open University. It, this is really a question for everyone, but I wonder if Rowena would, would kick it off. With the examples that we, we've looked at today from within the Open University seem to have been based on a case study approach. Are there problems with that in that we're ghettoising um, non-Western examples or is that the best way to do it? Is, is there something that we're missing here through taking that approach? Thanks, Carl. I'll take uh, one or two more questions f- before we ask uh, for a response. Don't be shy. You've all been li- listening for a long time. So, yes, there's one just there. I'm Linda Prescott, also from the Arts Faculty at the Open University. Um, at the start of this morning, I think Alan Tate talked about the... Um, the active interpretation of social justice. And Rowena mentioned tackling discrimination as a sort of ultimate objective of the diversity agenda. Um, And I was wondering at the start of the day how far we could go um, without actually putting more emphasis on the positives, the moral positives of equality, uh, respect for others, um, tolerance, 
which is not a word I think we've used yet. Um, as the presentations have gone on, I've, I've become a bit more optimistic about what can be achieved purely through broadening students' knowledge and opening up new perspectives um, as a way of tackling discrimination. But I'm still not sure about the balance between those two, and I'd be interested to hear the panel's views. Okay, I think if we we can take those first two questions, who'd like to uh, kick us off? Um, Rowena? Very briefly, I actually think the two questions are tied in, in fact. I don't actually think there is a problem with case studies. It's what you do with it. And I think the the different speakers that have um, spoken have actually taken the case study and they've expanded it into challenging norms and perceptions and preconceived values, etc. So they've actually used it to look at tackling discrimination. I think if, for example... um, the Benin situation where then they didn't look into the colonial aspects, that would be where the case study would have stopped short. But I think, you know, you, by opening it out, you have actually taken that and therefore the balance has been achieved from that. Um, my point early in the morning is that if you actually talked purely on diversity and celebrations of culture without looking at the other side, because the negative side, the discrimination is a more prickly one to be discussing, that would be, I think, to lose a learning opportunity. But I think all the case studies this morning have actually done both. And therefore, for me, I don't think that's a problem because they haven't fixated on it as some kind of microscopic look at these exotic cultures from elsewhere. It's not been... I certainly would have thought that people in the audience would agree that it's not, in fact, being projected in that way. So I don't know if others want to... Um. Uh, Could I just comment there on um, the Lesotho case study? Well, I say case study. It's really an example there, as I explained earlier, about how people can solve problems in different ways. Um, And it it was used really to try and um, just get people to think laterally. So the learning outcome of that um, wasn't necessarily linked directly to a diversity issue. It was, this is how these particular people have dealt with it, and then go on to how you've dealt dealt with similar problems. So um, I don't think it was ghettoising it, and also there were lots of other case studies within the course like the conservation issue, um, that didn't have um, inclusive issues there or diversity issues. So hopefully not. I could say a little bit more about A100 in in terms of ghettoisation, if that might be interesting. Um, I think actually a lot great efforts have been made in the course as a whole to try to deal with diverse subjects. And Although this comes to a head in book three with cultural encounters, um, the ground is prepared. I think the, the idea is that the student begins with looking at individuals. The first book is dedicated to reputations. But within that first book, not, not all those people are white Western males by any means. We have Cleopatra in there, for example. We have the Dalai Lama, um, a religious figure. Um, so within the first book, the intention is to provide a very broad range of figureheads. Then in the second book, the student goes on to look at tradition and descent. That is, they move from the individual to cultural norms, cultural conventions, in effect. 
And book three, they move wider still. They op- op- the vista is opened to the world at large in a much more conscious way in opening up cultural encounters. So I don't think it's as if diversity is ghettoized in the third book. It's more that you get a kind of build-up to it. There is a kind of logical progression. And I, think, I do think that diversity is represented in the first two books as well. And it's certainly not only our case study in book three. I mean, I was asked to talk about Benin because I think, you know, because we've had this fabulous film and rather exciting DVD, it's seen as a kind of flagship case study now. We've had a real windfall with this exhibition and the filming opportunities. But there are other parts of the book that address relevant issues in just as pertinent way. There's a, there's, um, a unit on short stories, for example, that deals with short stories from different parts of the world. There's a philosophy unit that looks at issues surrounding cultural encounters from a philosophical point of view. So there are different kind of inroads into a wide variety of issues there. Marlon, would you like to comment? Yeah, if I just... um, I mean, the way we approached it in archaeology was looking at at what was the science we wanted to, to demonstrate, to expand on. So it was starting from the science first rather than the case study. So we're looking to see which was the best case study to fit what we wanted to do. So in some cases, it, 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 it was obvious which one to go for. So if you're looking at, at frozen bodies or desiccated bodies, and you might look at the Uyaco children in Argentina, which are, are prime examples of good frozen bodies. There's not too many around, so that sort of limits us. Um, but we, we selected a whole variety of things to emphasise the science and the understanding of science and the understanding of archaeology, rather than the, the saying, OK, we only want to select these case studies for the sake of the case study. Um, so it's a different approach to do that, and it just so happened that we did get a good diverse range of, of examples from all over, trying to, to build up that idea that different perspectives occur in different areas. So that's sort of going to, to your point, Linda, sort of trying not to sort of... Um, pick on one culture and sort of highlight that one just only, but to compare cultures and get the students to get this broader understanding, both time and, and geographically, of what archaeology actually means. Thank you. Um, we'll take two more questions. Yeah, at the back on the right. <coughs> Jim Eiley, the science faculty. Um, I've got a question. I think it's aimed at Hillary, but it might be aimed at Alan Tate as well, unless he's gone. Um, But it's to do with, it's a a much more pragmatic issue. Hillary talked about students being able to negotiate their learning pathway to a certain extent. And I wonder just how much as an institution we we can achieve that as students move on from, say, an openings course into a more conventional uh, curriculum offering because I can see particular issues over, uh, over course presentations and how students negotiate themselves through that if we, if we don't uh, achieve an institutional uh, solution to that problem. Yes, and uh, your colleague to your right, uh, question as well. Thank you. Uh, Martin Ferns from the Faculty of Education and Language Studies. Um, I'm interested in also in the, the student perspective on this. Um, we've heard from the, the people developing the course and uh, who've made admirable efforts to make their courses as diverse as possible. I just wondered how um, or whether there was any uh, feedback from the students uh, both during the development process and also after uh, the courses. I know a couple of them are not yet out in the student marketplace, as it were. 
But um, has there been any uh, response uh, that we know about in terms of uh, student uh, take-up of courses from the different student populations and also whether the existing students have, uh, have um, responded positively to these uh, courses? Okay. Okay, um, let's take those two. So, yeah. Um, I'll answer the second question first, if that's okay. Um, Y162 um, was presented first in 2006, and the Institute of Educational Technology do collect statistics on the backgrounds of students, so um, gender, age, ethnic background and so on. So we have got quite a lot of statistics from the different uh, presentations so far. Um, They vary slightly from presentation to presentation, so sometimes we do have slightly more students from ethnic minorities or with particular needs than other years. Um, They also, uh, IET also carried out a survey on Y162 after the first presentation to get student feedback on it. And um, on the whole, the feedback was very positive. Um, I mean, they asked various closed questions and then open questions about, um, you know, different aspects of the course. And in fact, as part of um, the preparation for the next course, which I'm chair of, we've also sent a survey around to Y162 students asking about problem solving particular areas. So yes, we do have quite a lot of information on that and um, that could be used within the openings programme, you know, to improve particular aspects or strengthen different aspects. Um, Going back to the first question, I'm very aware, having moved from an openings course onto a 30-point level one course with um, fixed TMA dates and CMA dates, that's tutor-marked assignment dates and computer-marked assignment dates, that we don't have the same degree of flexibility and being able to um, look at the student in a very individual way. And that runs across um, the the whole new course, really, because... um, there isn't so much dedicated student support. So that is one of the issues that we are um, still battling with. And we've obviously put quite a lot of, or we are going to be putting quite a lot of guidance into the course about managing study and so on. But I agree with you that um, it is perhaps an issue that we need to look at more globally. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, would anyone else like to come in? Or you? Yeah? Okay, um, I'll move us on. Um, uh, unfortunately, Alan Tate isn't here, so I'm afraid, Jim, he can't uh, answer your question. Um, but I think what I would like to say is um, the development of programmes and programme committees presents an opportunity to ensure that there is some joined-up thinking across courses, so in terms of the student experience across the whole programme. Um, and certainly we have developed some guidance in your packs for programme committees to, to do just that. Okay, uh, we've got two questions that have come in uh, via the web. So if I can give you those together. Um, diversity in technical subjects. Is, uh, just trying to, sorry. Um, portraying diversity in technical subjects like social sciences and the arts is possible. But what about technical subjects like maths and the sciences? Um, how can we build diversity into courses in these areas in a way that isn't tokenistic? 
And I know Rowena's touched on this earlier, and uh, we obviously have someone here from maths and someone from uh, arts and sciences. So um, who'd like to take that? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, as I explained with Y162, it, uh, the starting with maths course, it, it is trying to attract people back into maths. So we've got um, quite a, a, a wide area that we could look at. But having said that, we still had to cover certain key technical skills. Um, and looking forward to the next course, where again we've got to make sure that certain skills are covered, um, I still think there's potential in looking at the history of maths um, the history of science, how how things have been developed, as well as um, you know ongoing research. Um, when you get up to sort of maybe second and third level, you know, very pure maths courses, I think the content does change more there, and it, it is much more focused on the actual development of the maths, and it's therefore a, a little harder, perhaps, to bring in all these different elements. Um, would you like to comment on science? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think I was just thinking through the different science areas. The key with learning is we want the students to engage with the material, to get excited about material, to actually apply and learn what they're, they're doing and to see relevance and context. So even the, the most fundamental sort of theories and, and ideas within science, you want to put it within some form of framework and you can pick examples, ways that the students can apply that and use that. So Rowena was talking earlier about sort of using different scenarios to actually apply those skills. And I think you could do the same in, in science quite easily. So if you were analysing some materials in chemistry, then you just sort of think about how you're actually going to get the students to think about what they're doing when they're analysing that by using different types of materials from different areas. Within geology, you could sort of go to different areas, different worlds. Uh, you can go to different worlds. You could go to Mars uh, and think about things. But you can, you can change the, the perspective that you're looking at that. So you don't have to always go with a conventional expected way of presenting material. So just think a, a little bit differently and, and pull on different threads in different areas and, and give it more exciting uh, context for the students to work within. I'm not a scientist or a mathematician, and these were areas um, that were difficult for people to come up with examples. I mean, we trolled our maths and science dep departments at Norseum in Scotland, but also wider, and we were having difficulties getting examples. And that's why I think it's important to, as I said right from the outset, that we are teaching pure maths, you're teaching pure maths, and that we can't... Um, we can't make something include diversity in the content if the content doesn't naturally allow it to. And I think we've got to be pragmatic in that respect. So in terms of the examples that have already been given around the table in terms of including um, different ways of seeing, including different scientists, including different um, texts, research from different parts of the world, um, all that kind of thing, I think we could do more of. Um, but in terms of my colleagues up north, because we are working with face-to-face -face students, we think about things like the ethos as a science lab and the learning and teaching area where you go on placements, um, which kind of companies you choose um, when you're sending students to look at ideas. Who is at that company? Um, if there's a chance, for example, of a role model CEO being somebody of a diverse background, could you involve them instead of the norm? So teaching through different ways. Now, I realise it's a challenge for the Open University colleagues who do not engage with students in that face-to-face -face manner. So it may be that, you know, there'll be some areas that you will be able to do more in than others. So I think that's as much as I can say. I don't know if you want to say something. Well, I, I would actually, because I, 
I think I'd challenge the idea that it's easier for art subjects to cover issues of diversity. Um, I think one of our biggest problems is the lack of diversity within our student body, and that is a real issue for us, how to overcome that. It's less marked at level one, and in fact it wasn't particularly particularly difficult. It seemed possible to develop a curriculum for the level one course that had diverse elements without it um, it seeming such a taxing problem as it is once you get into specialised art history, which traditionally has been rather a white upper-class subject and still has that perception. And a lot of what we study is resolutely Western. Now, we're trying to change that. We're certainly trying to appeal to a wider range of students. But how you do that is anything but straightforward. And I think the danger of tokenism, you know, just including the odd case study that breaks the mould, is a strong temptation, but it's not a way that's really going to succeed. I think we have to rethink the way that we present our subject far more fundamentally than that if we're really going to make much much impact on the diversity of our student body. Okay, thank you. Uh, The the second question from the web um, is about, um, sorry, from Billy Coker, who's Assistant Director in the Northeast region. Are there issues that need to be explored around cultural resonance of the curriculum before curriculum solutions and interventions are implemented? So I think that's referring to the choice of curriculum uh, that the university makes as opposed to the content of individual courses and programs. Again, again, Alan Tate may like to answer this as well, but... Would anyone like to comment? I don't quite understand the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're thinking about the choice of courses that the university opts for, you mean? I, I, that's my interpretation. So the, the actual choices of programs, the subject Indeed. areas that we teach. Yes, I, I suppose that's part of it because, I mean, in Scotland, for example, we don't have anywhere, any university that looks at black studies for example, not a single university offers that. And I think it would be hard push for any academic to actually really get that onto the agenda because by and large it's not seen as going to be popular or useful course of study. And I suppose theories of resistance might be another one of those. And yet there are the kinds of areas that, you know, if we're serious about reconfiguring, reframing, refocusing form part and parcel of the types of units we would want to include. So I think it's a valid question if it's posed from that, that we do need to look at the resonance and whose voices um, carry weight, whose voices are heard and who's determined that. And by and large, um, as you said, you know, they are still very much from a middle-class white perspective on it. So unless that grouping is prepared to power share and give up some space, then it's not going to change. So I acknowledge that that to be a difficult area. Um, I think you're more successful in putting these agendas on from England, actually. Would anyone else like to comment on that? I think we are beginning to to look at that with uh, just the ALQ and sort of shift towards employer engagement and uh, more vocationally relevant uh, subjects and disciplines. So I think that's something that the university will be looking at much more closely and thinking about what is the key curriculum, what should we be doing, um, and what's what's the culture that we're working within, what do people actually want to gain from higher education these days. Okay, thank you. Um, Are there any questions from the... Nation or regional centres, national or regional centres? 
No? Okay. Okay, in that case, um, I think we've just got time for perhaps one or possibly two more questions. Yeah, one in the center towards the front. Anyone else? Yeah, okay. Um, Ruth Barber from the Workers' Education Association. Um, I was formulating this question before Kim actually introduced the topic a minute ago. Um, you've, you've talked about putting equality and diversity into the curriculum and, and engaging colleagues in, in expanding that. But what you haven't looked at or even appear to have addressed, and you know, do correct me, is, is exactly what Kim was saying. How do you engage students who are very white, very middle class, very entrenched in their own culture. So it's, it's kind of turning the whole thing on its head, really. You're, you're making the offer, but, but you're not actually um, expanding diversity within some of your student cohorts. Okay, thanks, Ruth. I think that's a, that's a specific question to Kim, I believe. Um, but can I take the other question, which is just at the back here? Thank you. Um, I'm Barry Dicker from University of Wolverhampton. And um, my question is really, uh, looking at it from the tutor's end, I mean, that was a question from the student's end, but this is from tutor's end. With special needs um, students, and I know that's a deficit model, Rowena, but um, <laughs> um, it's generally fairly clear what the student needs, whether or not we provide it. But perhaps with women and black students, um, the needs are not so evident and I wonder, I mean, for example, the needs might be not to have the kinds of stereotypes that are prevalent visited on you, um, to have your experience reflected in that classroom and so on. So I wondered, in developing the curriculum, the curricula, as we discussed, um, to what extent do the tutors, or could we hope, could we expect that the tutors' assumptions and stereotypes might also be addressed? Can I just take those two very quickly Please. and I'll pass it on. Um, to Ruth's uh, question in, uh, in terms of engaging the students, that's precisely in the issue of race. That's precisely the issue in Scotland because that's the majority grouping will see it from a very norm perspective. And actually, if you look at sexual orientation, if you look at a whole host of issues, there will always be that you know, norm situation and then it's breaking it in. But I think some of the clues were given from the way that our other presenters, in fact, have framed their courses. And that is actually starting from people's perspective. If I want to tackle um, sectarianism, which is the Catholic-Protestant divide, issue. Now, Scotland, you might associate that with the west of Scotland in terms of Glasgow and the west area. But actually, it's as important for somebody from Murray or Ullapool in the very north of Scotland to actually engage with those issues too. But if I come in at it talking about sectarianism, you have no clue. Quite a few of them would just look at you blankly and say, well, is that not a west of Scotland Glasgow issue? What's that got to do with us? It's not our doorstep issue. So you ask them what some of their doorstep issues are, and actually some of their doorstep issues that they would understand on religious and tolerance would be along the lines of Islamophobia because they've seen that with um, on screen on telly and talking to their friends. They would understand the difference between the sort of orthodox Presbyterian and um, the more charismatic Christian 
um, movements. So they might not locate it within sectarianism, but they'll locate it in some other ways. And I think many of the courses we've heard of this morning kept talking about starting from where the student is. I think you've got to build from that. You can't impose a particular concept onto a learner where they have no back, background knowledge, but actually then pushing them forward. And I think actually um, where courses have vocational backgrounds like teaching, medicine, law, etc., it has been helped by the professional bodies saying this is the criteria you need to be competent in. So that's actually helped lecturers like myself being able to push it through in terms of course content. Um, where it's harder is where there isn't that kind of background and therefore the university needs to have a strong stance on it. But it's about global citizenship as well. I think people are beginning to understand that they've got to start engaging and be, and I don't like to quote Trevor Phillips because I don't necessarily always agree with him, but it's this comfortableness with diversity. So that's one thing, and I'm not quite sure if it answers you, Ruth, but that is the kind of problem I face on a day-to-day basis, particularly on race issues in Scotland. Barry's question about um, the distinction, I'm really pleased you brought that up, actually, because I didn't bring it up sufficiently when I started this morning. I think there is a difference between uh, meeting the needs of diverse learners and putting issues on an agenda for people because it's education. We're about knowledge exchange and knowledge um, delivery. And therefore, for me, um, the race equality part of it, or for that matter, learning about homophobia or anything of that kind, is actually more important for the majority group to be engaging with the issues rather than for the one black student or visible minority student or whatever. And I often say you need to be doing this regardless. You may have zero diversity in your class group, but you still need to be engaging it with the issues. And I think that distinction between meeting needs and actually putting issues on the agenda because they are part and parcel of um, social justice, wider social and anti-discriminatory agenda, I think is important. In Scotland, for example, when we first started looking at the toolkit, my colleagues wanted me to model it along the lines of teachability. Teachability is this toolkit that's been developed by universities to Clyde, looking at how to meet the needs of students with disabilities. And I really struggled to get past that bit of getting people to understand that the toolkit of race is not about meeting the needs of black students. It's actually about putting race on the agenda for all of us. And therefore, there is a very big conceptual difference in that sense. And we're still on that journey, I'm afraid. So how do we get staff to think about it? Actually, I think very practical examples that we've heard this morning. Um, you can't help but become enthused, and your mind is thinking in different ways. When I heard the archaeology and the maths and the art history presentation, my mind was working in very different ways, as I suspect some of yours were. And, and that's how I think we start cluing some of our more resistant colleagues in. I suspect most of the people who are here are the converted, as always, with these sessions. So. I think one reason why I did my presentation the way I did was because I wanted to capture your interest with the art of Benin, because it is fabulous stuff. It's not um, chosen to be politically correct. It's chosen because it is fabulous art. And there is a vivid and rather reprehensible story around Benin that raises all sorts of issues about display, about the way that we read historical sources, scholarly issues that our students need to deal with. So in choosing this case study... We're not, we were not trying to 
Well, let's be honest. I suppose we were trying to win students over to think about diverse issues. But we were not aiming to do that in a kind of preachy kind of way. We were picking fantastic material that offers a unique opportunity to ask the kind of scholarly questions that our students need to ask at that stage in their learning. So I think the way that I would see us approaching our admittedly non-diverse student body is primarily through very careful choice of curriculum, which delivers all that is expected in terms of learning and delivers some real surprises in terms of the material. And I think I've been surprised by how amazingly receptive students tend to be, actually. I mean, my experience, admittedly, is limited to art history, but sometimes we throw out stuff that we think is terribly controversial, and the students just lap it all up. You know, so rather than being um, confronted with an enraged student body, I think our experience has been quite the opposite. I think... When our pro- the problem as we see it is not so much an intransigent student body which won't accept diverse um, learning material. It's far more um, that we have. We feel we have learning material that would be interest to a far wider range of students, but we seem unable sometimes to convince them of that, to convince them into the subject. Can I just respond? Yeah. Uh, to the, the question up at the back about the, the role of the tutor. Uh, within the science short courses, we don't have tutors. We have study advisors, uh, so the students can contact a, an advice line or go online and talk with other students or, or talk directly to an advisor. One of the roles of, of the um, online advisors is to try to get the students to think about how the course relates to their own perspective, the student's perspective, and what's happening um, at this point in time. So interesting stories, ideas, um, sort of news items that are coming up. So it's important that those study advisors actually pull on the wealth of their own experience within the subject area, but also look at what's happening in the media at the moment and, and how archaeology is portrayed uh, and pull on different types of, of resources so it's not just sort of from one focus. So that's something that the, the advisors will be doing which re-emphasises the objectives in the course to get the students to think in, in the bigger picture uh, across the world and also subject-wise. Hilary, would you like to come in on anything? Um, <clears throat> just going back to the uh, openings courses and, and the uh, question about um, the tutors. Um, the openings programme is very, very student-centred and uh, in the staff development that we give to tutors, um, you know, we do encourage them to listen very carefully to what students are saying, both to analyse sort of the problems that they're having um, and to pick um, appropriate examples which will help students with that. Um, obviously, it's still down to the tutor to sort of select an example that they think is going to uh, support the learning of that um, student. Um, But they do get quite a lot of support through our staff development programme. So I'm sure more could be done, but um, it is very student-centred. Okay, thank you very much. Um, We have actually now reached the end of our programme. We have gone slightly over, but uh, we had enough questions to keep us going until 10 past 12, so thank you very much. Um, there's a long list of people that I should thank, and I'm sure you'll appreciate that I can't thank them all uh, by name here and now, but I would like to say thank you to our keynote speaker, Rowena Arshad, 
and our case study presenters and panel, Hilary Holmes, Arlen Hunter and Kim Woods. I'd also just briefly like to say thank you to the many course managers and course teams across the university who provided feedback on the uh, guidance documents that are in your packs as they were in development and those who submitted their good practice case studies uh, for the website. There's now 19 case studies on the site. And also to project manager Pat Grace for developing that website for us. And to those staff in the Curriculum and Awards Office and the Equality and Diversity Office who administered this event, I'm sure you'll agree it's all uh, run smoothly. And uh, also to those staff who are working behind the scenes, including catering and our AV team here today. Thank you very much. And my particular thanks to Jane Wardale, whom I've had the great pleasure of working alongside in taking forward these developments over the last year or so. Finally and importantly, I want to thank you, the participants, not only for your participation today, but for your enthusiasm and commitment to this work. And I'd just like to remind you of the questions that Alan Tate posed for you at the beginning of the day. And they were, what can you do to promote and share the good practice and innovation in your course, award or program? And what can you do to learn from the good practice and innovation in other people's courses, awards and programs? Uh, This event is available as a replay on the Beryl Stadium website. So if you've been really inspired by something today, you can go back and tell your colleagues who are not here and they can catch up with it later. I would really appreciate if you can uh, complete the evaluation forms. And if you're taking part over the web, you can get one from our website. So thank you once again for your participation. And for those of you who are here in the theatre, please come and join us for lunch. Thank you very much.